late 1800s, there was a missionary by the name of James Calvert who was sent as a missionary to the islands of Fiji. And at that time, the islands of Fiji were known for being cannibals. They, they would eat the flesh of people. Not a great place to go as an outsider. Terrifying situation, possibly costing your life. And as the ship approached the islands, the captain of the ship turned to Calvert, who was leading this group, and tried to persuade him to change his mind. I, don't, I assume he had tried earlier as well. Seems like a long voyage to wait till the end. But tried to persuade him, saying, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you. Not only are you putting yourself at risk, you're putting everybody else around you at risk. Turn back. Don't do this. You're going to die. Calvert's reply, as recorded in history, is beautiful. He looked at the captain and he said, we died before we ever came here. That sounds odd. Died before you ever came here. See, Calvert had made a commitment. He had made a commitment to go on this trip. And in that commitment, he understood that all of the subsequent Actions, reactions, consequences, all of it was tied up in the commitment. Whatever was to come would happen because he made a commitment and he could not now turn back from that commitment. The decision had already been made. We're going to be talking about commitment today. I've titled the sermon, A Committed People. We're going to look at a public commitment that the people of Israel make in Nehemiah chapter 10, a little bit of chapter 9 as well. I think that commitment is considered a bad word today. I think the idea of commitment is not popular at all. To make a commitment is to bind yourself to something, to tie yourself down to something. Commitment, by definition, hinders our freedom and limits our choices. Things that our modern world does not like. You can't limit your personal choices. So the only commitment we can make is something that helps us to make our own free choices. And the moment that commitment hinders those choices is the moment we cut off that commitment and move on to something else. Which is funny if you think about it, because that's not commitment at all. At all. A commitment that is only something you stick to when it benefits you is not actually a commitment at all. Calvert understood commitment. He had made a commitment. First, he had made a commitment to give his life to Christ. And in that moment, he had given up his life to whatever Christ wanted. The gospel writers write, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take up your cross. Consider yourself as one who has died. When we accept Jesus Christ, our self, our old self is gone, buried, dead. And so Calvert understood this. He said, I died a long time ago. I'm a follower of Christ. Come what may. He made a commitment to go to these islands and to preach the gospel. And that's exactly what he did. History records he did not die on those islands. He did preach the gospel. He learned their language, saw many won to Christ, including the king of Fiji. And the islands were changed forever. He went on to work to translate the scriptures into their language. Because he made a commitment. Open up with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to start right at the last couple of verses here. 
we're going to see a commitment that the people of Israel make to the Lord. A commitment that should have lasting effects on them. Now, just to catch you up in case you're joining us in the middle or really toward the end of the sermon series, we've been walking through Ezra, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which kind of go together to tell the account in history of God's people returning from exile. So the history of the Jewish people in in Scripture, God calls them into a relationship with himself through Abraham and his offspring he claims as his own. They end up enslaved in Egypt and God rescues them out of there, takes them into the wilderness and says, okay, I have saved you. I've rescued you. Now, this is what the relationship's going to look like. And he gives them his law that defines and describes and lays out the plan for their relationship together. He goes on to settle them in the promised land through miraculous deliverances and overcoming their enemies. And over and over again, he tells them, stay faithful. I've communicated with you. I've reached out to you. I've saved you. Stay faithful. Trust in me. And over and over again, they say yes, and then they don't. And then they say yes, and then they don't. I think sometimes we can identify with that. Time and time again, God warns them, come back. I love you too much to just let you go. I want you to come back, but if you will not, I will take you to a place that will force you to depend on me. I will raise up foreign armies against you, and they will conquer your land and take you into exile. And that's exactly what happened. And after years in exile, God begins to bring his people back to the promised land. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about Ezra covers the first return under Zerubbabel where they come back and they build the temple and then another return under Ezra where they come back and he reinstitutes the law and they make a commitment then and then we have Nehemiah and he comes back and the people dwelling in Jerusalem are a mess and he builds the wall. They build the wall. He didn't do it by himself. They build the wall and then we've read through in chapters uh, 8 and 9 where they read the law again and they're struck and impacted by the law. And so in today's passage, we're going to see that the people are going to make a public commitment to keep God's law. They've read God's word and they're standing up and saying, we are committed to that. God's truth that we just read, we are committed to this. We are committed to the Lord. And that's the first thing we're going to look at as we understand what it means to be people committed to the Lord is that it starts with understanding we must be people committed to the Lord. There is a commitment necessary in our relationship between us and God. Throughout scripture, we see this. Commitment is essential to understanding scripture. God first, this is mind blowing. God commits himself to us. That's amazing. He doesn't have to do that, didn't have to do that at all. But over and over again, it is God who takes the initiative in the commitments. He reaches out to Abraham and calls him. He makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with the Israelite. Talks about a new covenant. He sends his son, Jesus Christ. God takes the initiative in the commitment. And he calls his people to commit themselves to him. And he builds into their culture and their day-to-day lives these reminders of this commitment. 
You might read through the Old Testament and come upon the feasts or the festival. They pop up again in the the New Testament as well. All these different feasts and festivals throughout the Jewish year that they were to practice in order to remember their commitment they had made to the Lord. Now, in the immediate context that's going on here, remember they've, they've come back from exile. They've been disciplined by God because they had been unfaithful. They've come back and now they're going, what now? How is this time going to be different? Have you ever been in a situation like that? Okay, I really screwed up, but I'm going to make it right. And there's that that question, but what's going to be different? And one of the things they say is we will make a public commitment to the Lord. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra and the priests read the law every day for several days, just hours on end, reading the law, explaining it to the people. This goes on and on. And we talked about how it was God's word that drove the response of God's people. They recognized their own sins and they wanted to repent. They were weeping and bawling and understanding that they were sinners. And Ezra and the leader say, hold on. First, we need to celebrate what the Lord has done. And then we will deal with our own sin. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 9 and their, their public corporate repentance and confession of their sins. And the leaders walk through the history of Israel, emphasizing God's faithfulness and their unfaithfulness. And at the end, there's this, this lingering idea, God, you have shown mercy throughout the ages. We are trusting in that mercy still today. And so we come to verses uh, chapter 9, 38, all the way through chapter 10, verse 39. This is their response to God's word. They have confessed their sins, and now they are making a public commitment. One author put it this way, it is a covenant to keep a covenant. It is a promise to keep a promise. They had already promised these things back in the time of Moses With the law, when God called them, they had affirmed this covenant or this contract you can think of it as. They don't have to reaffirm it here. It's still binding. But they are standing up to say, we are coming back. We recognize that we have not been faithful. And we are reaffirming reaffirming the promise that we have made. I think this is powerful. We need to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, do I need to reaffirm? Do I need to come back and realize where I've walked away or, or not trusted in the Lord? And, and maybe I need to get together with someone and say, hey, can you hold me accountable? I want to make a commitment. I want to truly follow the Lord. Can you help me? There is a good and proper place for that. To reaffirm our commitment to the Lord, sometimes even publicly. And so as we're looking at what it means for them to be a committed people, look at verse 38 of Nehemiah chapter 9. In view of all this, that's, that's their account of the history, their public repentance, the reading of the law. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They are promising to keep the covenant. Now, I'm not going to read verses 1 through 27, and you can't make me. It is a long list of names. <laughs> I don't usually shy away from the names, but you can skim over it for yourself. But, but understand what they're doing. They've read the law. They've made a public commitment and they are signing a document saying they are committed to this. And, and I don't want to read the names, but I do want you to understand there's an order. It starts with Nehemiah, their leader. He says, I'm committed. 
And then it goes on to the priests, the religious leaders, we're committed. Goes to the Levites, kind of the next level of religious leaders, we're committed. It goes to the, the leaders of all the different clans, kind of political, social, cultural leaders, we're committed. And then at the end, it's everyone in the nation of Israel. Verses 28 and 29, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all those now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. They went on public record to say, we are committed to this. And I love that the leaders took the lead in this. They put themselves on record that they are committed to the Lord. It's interesting because this challenge is a fundamental idea that so often we struggle with in our relationship with God, which is that faith is a private matter. Your your relationship with God is between you and the Lord, we often say. That's not true, actually. According to scripture, our relationship between us and God is very much a public matter. It is a corporate matter. It is a group matter. It is us together. And God meant for us to not keep our faith private and just to ourselves, but to share it with our brothers and sisters in Christ around us so we can hold each other accountable. It is a public matter. Every once in a while, we have people that come to Orchard who say they don't believe in church membership. I don't want to join a church. Can't make me sign a paper saying that I'm committed to something. I've already accepted Jesus. Why do I need to commit to anything else? This is not biblical. Nehemiah, end of chapter 9 and all of chapter 10, they committed to something they've already committed to publicly and signed a document bearing witness to the fact that they have committed to it. It is very biblical to practice church membership. It is helpful to practice church membership because it helps us to stand up when we join the church and say, I'm committed to the same thing you're committed to. And the leaders make a commitment and the people make a commitment and the new members make a commitment. It is a public public commitment to keep the word of the Lord together. I think that commitment has become, unfortunately, a revolutionary idea today. We value individual individuality, personal preference, personal freedom, personal identity, and personal choice. Commitment is seen as a limiting factor on those things. And so we don't want to commit ourselves to anything. We don't want to commit to a church. We don't want to commit to rules. We don't want to commit to authority. We don't even want to commit anymore to a husband and wife marriage relationship. We don't want to commit to anything. Commitment is linking to even binding ourselves to something else. And it is all over scripture. So as Christians, we need to let go and purge this modern idea that I should be able to do and have whatever I want and accept the idea there is a God. He has made a commitment to me and I need to make a commitment to him. Come what may, no matter what. 
I will keep on trusting in my heavenly Father. So we are to be a committed people, but committed to what? And that's what the rest of the passage is about. They are specific in their commitments. They're going to specifically apply three Old Testament laws and commit to these things. And what I want to do is look at these laws to help us understand aspects of our relationship with the Lord, that we need to be committed to truth, committed to trust, and committed to worship. Let's start with committed to truth. This might seem odd, but look at verse 30. They make a promise. Here's their public promise. Remember, they're signing this document. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. You say, Pastor, the, the word truth isn't even in there. This is about marrying other people. Some people take a verse like this, and we've dealt with this numerous times throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. They say, see, this is racism. God ordained racism. They were not to intermarry between other races. And we've already dealt with this, so I just want to skim over it quickly. And I'll reference another sermon on Ezra chapter 9 and chapter 10 on February 13th. I preached a sermon called God's Work Brings Repentance. Went into detail about why this is not racism. This is not about racial purity. It is about religious purity. Not about racial purity. It's about religious purity. Holding on to truth. The point of these laws about not intermarrying with the people of the land was because those people worshipped foreign gods and goddesses and idols. Some of them were of horrific practices. Told the story, there was one culture that the way they would worship is they built a statue. They molded it out of metal. They would build up a, a fire around its base with arms outstretched. And they would build a fire and place an infant in that statue's arms. And this was how they worshiped their God. And this is why when we hear God saying, don't marry those people. It's because their truth, their ideas, their religious practices would seep in. And do you know? shocking, God was right. Because that's exactly what happened to the Israelites over and over and over again. Instead of standing for truth, they allowed other ideas to come in and pervert and undermine the truth that God had given them. And we looked in that sermon at two women, Rahab and Ruth, both of who were of a different race than the Jewish people. They were not racially Jewish. In fact, especially in the case of Rahab, she was not a good person at all. She lived what most would consider a a very sinful life. She was a prostitute. And yet, she trusted in the God of the Israelites. And she acted in such a way that rescued the Israelites from capture and possibly death. And she was honored by the Lord before the people. And both her and Ruth, who would come after were labeled as righteous women, and they are listed in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when so many other women, they don't talk about their moms, yet these Gentile, non-Jewish, even sinful women are listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because it's God saying, don't miss that I work through this woman. She trusted in me. This is not about fighting against another race. It is about holding on to the truth of God's word. They were to be committed to God's truth and not let anything else come in and pull them away. God did not want them and still does not want us to be today to be enticed by and led astray by the thoughts and the ideas and the fake truths of our world. 
We cannot allow these things to dilute or contaminate the truth of the word of God. Now, for each of these three things, I want to talk about how it applies to us today. First of all, the Old Testament law to not marry outside of the people of God. Does that still apply to us today? And the answer is yes, it does. God's word makes clear both in the Old and the New Testament We are not to marry someone who does not believe in the Lord. We are not to marry. I've got kids that are of marrying or not of. (laughs) I'm going to hear about that later. Someday. and, And maybe there's other singles in our midst. Please hear that God is very clear. Do not marry someone who is not a believer. Do not. The Lord knows you. He knows them. He knows his plan for you. Let me give you some New Testament references. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Paul's talking about whether or not a woman can remarry after her husband's death. But what, she, what he specifically says is if she remarries, that person, that man must belong to the Lord. There's, there's a statement. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? And he goes on to talk about idolatry. So please, if you are not married today, hear me. Do not marry someone who is not, they might be a wonderful person, so sweet, so wonderful, they might make you feel great. Make a commitment now in your Christian life, I will not marry someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ. I want to state that, state that clearly, but I equally want to state clearly, because some of you today might be thinking, but I'm already married to someone who's not a believer. Scripture also says very clearly that Christians who are married to an unbeliever should not leave them, but should live as an example of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, also in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Christians are called to remain with their unbelieving spouse. So I want to hold on to these two truths. If you're not married, don't marry an unbeliever. If you are married to an unbeliever, love them, cherish them, and live out the gospel of Christ for them to see. And maybe, just maybe, in that way, you will win them to the Lord. I don't want to water down one for the sake of the other. But there is also a broader application here to us that we all struggle with. Do not mix the truth of God and his word with the false ideas of this world. And the only way to make sure you're not doing that is to go so deep in scripture that it saturates your mind and your attitudes and everything about you. I pray that we will be people committed to the truth of God's word. So they make this public commitment to hold on to God's truth, not mix that truth with the ideas of the cultures around them. And and that's still true for us today. Now they make another commitment. And I'm calling this a commitment to trust. Look at verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we'll cancel all debts. Debts. Again, pastor, the word trust isn't even in there. You're reading into this way too much. Why did God give them the Sabbath laws? 
And let me help you in case you don't have a background in this to understand what the Sabbath laws are. They had several. In fact, there's kind of three levels. There's the Sabbath day, one day a week, the seventh day of the week. They were not to do any work. They were to trust in the Lord and to use that for worship and service to the Lord. They were to let their fields go, not buy or sell goods. They were to trust in the Lord. This was the Sabbath day, which contrary to what a lot of Christians say today, it was Saturday. Saturday was the Sabbath. And the Jewish people were not to work on that day. So you have a Sabbath day. They had a Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they were to not plant or plow or do anything with their fields for a whole year. Do you imagine a farmer just says, yeah, I'm not doing anything this year. And it's interesting. The point was they were to trust the Lord. So we have the Sabbath day, the Sabbath year, and then we had the year of Jubilee after seven sets of seven years, so 49 years. Then they would have a 50th year, this year of Jubilee, and all property that had been bought and sold was to return back to the original families. All property was to return to the original families. All slaves were to be set free and all debts erased. So these are the three levels of the Sabbath laws, the day, the year, and then the ultimate, the year of Jubilee. Sabbath was an act of faith. Look at what God told them when he gave them this law in Leviticus 25, 21 and 22. This is about the, uh, the Sabbath year. I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. God tells them, Don't worry. Trust me. That's what the Sabbath year was all about. Trust the Lord. This should have made them think of something else. Do you remember when they're wandering through the wilderness and they had no food? And manna falls from heaven. And he told them on the seventh day, don't collect any of it. Don't keep it. I will provide it up on the sixth to to have enough to eat on the seventh. So they were to trust the Lord. He wanted to build that trust into everything that they did. He wanted them to have faith and trust in him. This is still so important for us today. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We are still to be people who trust in the Lord today. Now, the New Testament does not repeat the Sabbath principles or commands for Christians today. Some people struggle with that. They say, well, we still keep the Sabbath. We keep it on Sunday. No, Sunday's not the Sabbath. Saturday was the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday because that's when Jesus rose. And ever since the resurrection, they celebrated on Sunday because it was a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul planted churches, he does not command them to keep the Sabbath. In fact, in places where he can talk about the Sabbath, such as Romans chapter 14, verse 5, he's, he's talking about keeping festivals and days, and he says some people keep one day holy, another don't think that it's a big deal. And he says it's a matter of personal preference. It would have been a great place to say, hey, keep the Sabbath. But he didn't. It's not in the New Testament. It is, I believe, a place of private, personal conviction. If you want to set aside one day, that's, that's good for you. I think the Sabbath principle is good, but let's be careful not to use that to judge other believers. It is not carried over as a rule or a law in the New Testament. But what is absolutely carried over 
is that we are to trust the Lord. We are to be people of trust. We are to live lives trusting him. We cannot say that we're committed to the Lord if we don't live in such a way that trusts the Lord. We are to be people committed to trust. Finally, we are to be people committed to worship. In verses 32 through the end of 39, I'm not going to read it. You can read it for yourself. But it's really summed up in one final sentence. If you jump to the last verse, right at the end of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. And throughout it, they make commitments to give the tithe, a tenth of what they own, to commit to the Lord the firstborn of their livestock, uh, to commit to the Lord the firstborn of their houses. Now, that's different. They didn't sacrifice the child. They would offer an offering in the place of a child. Um, They made a commitment to keep the work of the temple going. This is their commitment to public worship. The practice of tithes and offerings was an expression of worship. And by worship, I don't just mean what they did on that one time that they went to the temple or the tabernacle for an hour or two. I mean their lives lived in worship to the Lord. Worship in scripture is keeping something as the highest and highest priority in our lives and living in light of that. That's that's the biggest definition of worship I can think of. It's not just a certain religious activity. It is the ordering of all of our lives under the highest, most foundational principle that we believe is most important. So when we worship God in our lives, we make him our highest priority, our greatest purpose, and we recognize our complete and utter dependence on him. That's what the tithes and the offering were about. That's what keeping the temple was all about. It's what the sacrifices at the temple were all about. Acts of worship and faith, trusting in their Lord. Today, we do not have a temple. This beautiful facility is not a temple. There's nothing more holy about these walls and this floor and this ceiling than your house or a gym or anywhere else. This is a tool. It is a building and it is just a tool. When you come to church, you are not going to the house of the Lord. It's not what this is. If you want to know where the house of the Lord is, where the dwelling place of God is, where the temple is in the New Testament, it's right here and right there in every single believer. You are the dwelling place of God. And where two or three gather together, there is God in their midst. You don't need some special holy building with a special holy name or a a room that's called a sanctuary. You just need the presence of Jesus Christ in each and every person that's saved. But there are references in the New Testament about tithes and offerings. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks about each person setting aside an amount uh, in keeping with their income to give to the Lord's people. And Paul would come and collect it. It was an act of faith, and it still is today. We pass the offering plates on a set day of the week. And the idea, and this is between you and the Lord, I don't dip into the books to know what you're giving, but it is an act of faith. I came across a great story where someone went to a pastor and said, you know, I really want the Lord's blessing on my business and I'm getting it started. So I've committed 10% of everything I earn. So the first week he made $40 and he gave $4. He was keeping his commitment. A couple of years go by and God has really blessed him and, and, and he's doing great and he's having to give about $500 a week to the church. And he goes to the pastor and says, I need to be released from this commitment. It has gotten too expensive. 
Can you release me from this? And the pastor said, you made a commitment to the Lord. I can't release you from it, but here's what I'll do. I will pray that the Lord shrinks your business back to $40 a week and you won't have to give so much money. There is a broad application here. So specifically, yes, we should give of our time, talents, and resources to the Lord, to the church, to agencies, organizations, others. We should give. Giving is an act of worship. But we don't need to, or we shouldn't miss the broader application. We should be people of worship. Setting Christ as our highest priority in everything that we do. Putting God first in our lives, our decisions, our motivations, our actions. We cannot be people who worship for one hour on Sunday morning. We must be people that worship 24 hours a day, every day of the week. We are to be people of worship, keeping God as our highest priority and living accordingly. So we are to be people committed. Let me ask you, have you accepted that in your relationship with God, that it is a commitment? It's not just a personal choice. It's a commitment. It's not just something that feels good for a while. It's a commitment. Do you need to make a commitment to the Lord? And then we need to be committed to truth, to the truth of God's word, not personal preference or or just what happens to be popular at the time, committed to the truth of God. God says it. We believe it. That settles it. Are we people committed to trust? We will trust in the Lord, come what may. When things might seem to be turning against us and our ideas are no longer popular, we will trust the Lord. Are we committed to worship, no matter what in our lives, to keeping God as our highest priority? These were the commitments the people made in Nehemiah's day. And in just one or two chapters, you will see that these four commitments... These three very specific commitments are specifically the commitments that they break. Just like that. We need to hold on to our commitments. Calvert said before he reached the islands of Fiji that he had died before he ever left because he looked at his life through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his identity. My Savior has died. He died in my place. Therefore, I, Dave Day, my thoughts, my ideas, my desires, died with my Savior, crucified, put to death, buried and gone. I am not that person anymore. I've been risen to new life in Jesus Christ. To be committed to him, to trust in him, to worship him, to accept his truth in my life. That's how Calvert was able to say that. And I pray that's how we can, each one of us, make that commitment. I've already died. What more can this world do to me? To see our lives through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are people that struggle with commitment. We live in a world that does not honor commitments, does not support even the very idea of commitment. And and God, at times, we, even as your people, we've allowed those ideas, those, those thoughts and ideas to come into our way of thinking. 
And Father, I publicly, on on behalf of my brothers and sisters in Christ, I confess this to you. And we repent before you. And we pray that through the power of your word, you would purge out of us those ideas that we have held on to that are not in line with your truth. May we be committed to truth. Father, we have lived anxiously. We have not lived in a way that trusts you. And so may we be committed to trust. And Father, we have allowed other priorities to come into our lives. And so may we be people of worship, setting you and accepting that you are our highest priority in all things. Father, may people look at us, not just us as individuals, not even just us as Orchard Community Church, but us as your people, together with our brothers and sisters around the world. May they see something so fundamentally different. May they see our commitment to you so that we can tell them about your commitment to us and how you sent your son to die in our place to save us from our sins, that they could turn and accept your love and commitment to them as well and give their lives to you and become part of this beautiful, wonderful, sometimes messy, committed people as we are your children. And in your name we pray, amen.